My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, you can help me in one of two ways. Number one is you can go on iTunes and write a brief review about my podcast. It would really help me a lot. And number two is you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and make a donation. Now, I want to start our episode today with a brief story. There are very few moments that stand out in my time uh, from my time when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto. And one such moment was the following. So I was in front of a room full of students trying to make two identical pendulums behave in a perfect synchrony and go perfectly together. Now, I, I gave it a number of attempts and perhaps the best that I could do at the time was, I think, 30, if I'm generous to myself, maybe 45 seconds or so, or so, which actually kind of impressed my professor at the time. Maybe it was the best attempt at that time. But yet the whole point of that course, or at least that lesson, was about the topic of complexity. And of course, the specific uh, moral of the story was how nearly identical complex system that started seemingly identical conditions can very quickly diverge and start behaving in a very radically different divergent way. And not only that, but how it is incredibly hard to understand those complex systems to begin with, how it's even harder to predict how they will behave in the future, and maybe even harder than that to, to try and attempt to control such systems. So needless to say, that was one of my favorite memories from undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Toronto. And the professor who was teaching that course was actually a very famous uh, superstar professor. He's the author of a number of fantastic books. The first one that I read back in the day was called The Ingenuity Gap. Then his next book was The Upside of Down. And most recently, and the topic of our conversation today, uh, his recent book is called Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. So without further ado, Thomas Omer Dixon, welcome to Singularity FM. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. And that's such a fun story. I remember the moment well. You do? Really? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so this is, a, uh, this is a double hinged pendulum and it was two double hinged pendulums together. So for folks who are not in the know, these are really quite extraordinary devices. So it's a pendulum with two pivots, basically one at the top, like a normal pendulum, and then another one in the middle of the of the of the arm of the pendulum. And uh, they're designed so that both of those pivots can operate simultaneously. And uh, uh, and and if you have two of uh, two of these side by side, as was the case here, you can do your your very best to try to make them behave in exactly the same way when they're dropped from a height and they very quickly as you were saying diverge in their behavior because even the the tiniest tiniest factors a slight tremor of the hand or maybe a bit bit of uh, air turbulence in the room that influences one and not the other will produce ultimately a huge difference in how they behave and the way they flip back and forth so it, it's a really fun demonstration it impresses everybody but i didn't get everybody to come up to the front of the class i think you were one of the only ones to actually try it out yeah, I was always the, the, the kid who would sit on the first row in all my classes, actually. So precisely for moments like that. But interestingly enough, out of my five years at UFT, that moment has like 
really left the mark in, in my mind. And it's like kind of like a real amazing lesson that I've taken with me ever since. To be honest, I don't remember that much else from that class, but the 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 complexity uh, uh, moral of that story is like, now I can't even forget it. It's so well taught. So the interesting thing is that that was the... Uh, I had that that pendulum and I was using it in another course. Uh, and I think I just brought it into the class that you were in just to give people a quick demonstration of this general idea. But the, the complexity scientists call it sensitivity to initial conditions. And these double hinged pendulums are highly sensitive to initial conditions. And just to, you know, to tie this story off, one of the people in that, that uh, class that I was actually taking the pendulum to was an undergraduate student, Mike Lawrence, who went on to Waterloo to study with me as a master's student and ultimately as a PhD. And when he finished his PhD, he was so, so thrilled that he had his father, who is a, a, an accomplished machinist, actually build a double-hinged pendulum and uh, as a thank you present and send it out to me here in British Columbia. I haven't put it together yet, but I'm very excited because they're just such wonderful demonstrations of this basic principle. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Thomas, unfortunately, not all of our audience, or probably none of them, had the, this amazing opportunity to study with you or under you. Uh, so if we presume that they have complete ignorance about who you are and what you have done, and let's say you meet them one-on-one -on -one in a at a conference or in a bar somewhere in Victoria or elsewhere in the world in the good old days when we actually could meet physically together, how would you introduce yourself? Who is Thomas Omer Dixon? I'm a writer and I'm an academic and an enormously curious person who is very concerned about uh, the world that my children are going to inherit. Uh, Sarah and I have two children, a, a, 12, a 13, 15 year old boy, Ben, and a 12 year old girl, Kate. And so a very important part of my identity is my identity as a father to these two two children feel like any parent enormous responsibility to them uh, my academic work has focused on uh, over the years on the sources of violent conflict so when I started as an undergraduate and went on to do my doctorate at MIT I was very interested and still remain very interested in why people fight each other why people kill each other en masse sometimes millions of, of deaths a result from mass conflicts between human beings uh, I, I still regard that as an extraordinarily bizarre behavior, and uh, I wanted to understand that more deeply. And then the other part of my academic interest focuses on uh, our relationships with the natural world. I'm fundamentally an environmentalist. I'm deeply concerned about climate change. I'm uh, very anxious to see the energy transition towards a zero-carbon economy underway faster than it's happening. So I've brought those interests together in my work, uh, the relationship between social breakdown and uh, environmental stress, how, how various kinds of uh, environmental problems such as climate change might ultimately undermine social stability around the world and how we can prevent that from happening. So my writing focuses most specifically on those issues. Yeah, I remember uh, when we were in that class, we were uh, studying excerpts from your first book that was on environment scarcity and violence. Um, but perhaps another sh sh short sideways story. Why do you go by Tad instead of Thomas? Is there a story behind that? 
Not much. No. And when, although it does relate to the current book, Commanding Hope, um, when I was born, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. I was born in 1956. And, uh, and uh, the, the, what, the, the Doonesbury trip of those days, of course, Doonesbury is a bit dated now. A lot of people wouldn't remember it, but it was the, it's a highly political cartoon strip uh, of those days was Pogo by Walt Kelly. And Pogo, it was it was a, a family or a community of animals in the in the uh, Everglades swamps of Victoria of, of uh, Florida, and uh, my parents were huge fans of the Walt Kelly strip Pogo and Pogo, who's an opossum, would refer to the tads, which were the little animals running around in the swamp. And when I was born, uh, I was this small thing in a crib, and so they started referring to me as the tad in the crib. And it's huh. stuck. <laughs> so <laughs> the connection to the to the book Commanding Hope is I actually I actually include a a, car, a, a very famous uh, cartoon from Walt Kelly Pogo cartoon uh, in the book, uh, and people have probably heard this expression. Uh, Pogo is is sitting on the edge of a of a swamp that's full of junk, garbage, uh, tin cans, plastic. Uh, old tires and things, and he says to what the friend beside him. He says, "We have seen the enemy, and he is us." And it's it's probably Walt Kelly's most famous famous aphorism: "We have seen the enemy, and he is us." And I, I I refer to it, and I include the cartoon because when it comes to problems like climate change, we are uh, we we can't externalize this these problems and say they're somebody else's fault. We're all, in some sense, responsible. Our our fundamental human natures as consumers, as top predators, uh, uh, and various other characteristics of human beings and the social structures they set up have made us have created this problem of climate change. So it's very internal to us. It's not something we can blame on other people. And I use Walt Kelly's cartoon as a way of just hammering home that point. I think it's a great story, and I think it's a great cartoon, uh, and it's uh, it's full of wisdom and insight, and it goes to the heart of the problem uh, to represent and capture what the problem is, but also to represent and capture why is it so hard to actually go about resolving it. Uh, so we are going to jump right into your book and start talking about uh, the meat of the matter here. However, before that, I just want to ask you with one sentence each, perhaps, just so that we get the chronology of Tad's sort of intellectual ideas in terms of books. What's the thesis of your, uh, the ingenuity gap? And what's the thesis of the upside of down? So that then we can see how the next thesis of your latest book compares within that kind of line of thinking. Sure, that's great. So you're quite right that this these are sort of a it's a sort of a trilogy of a books. Now you mentioned one other thing, just as sort of a precursor, which is the original academic book I did from Princeton University Press, which was titled "Environment, Scarcity, and Violence." It's still it's still in print uh, twenty years after it was published, and that really focuses on those relationships between environmental stress and violent conflict. That was the beginning of my academic my academic trajectory, I guess you could say, after I came out of graduate school. Uh, but um, I realized that one of the critical problems, one of the one of the one of the issues that had to be addressed if we were trying to understand why some societies suffer so much from environments, water scarcity, deforestation, 
absence of cultural land and have critical to economic results, poverty, mass migrations of people because of those environmental problems is because they couldn't, they couldn't solve those problems effectively. They couldn't generate solutions. Either they didn't have the right institutional arrangements or they didn't have the right scientific establishments to generate solutions to those problems. So that led me to this idea of the ingenuity gap, which is basically the idea that, that uh, humankind is facing an increasing gap between our need for solutions or what I call ingenuity and our ability to deliver those solutions. Uh, and, and, uh, and so the book is really about whether we can solve the problems of the future, whether our problems are becoming too complex and too difficult for us in, and given the, our capacity to deliver, to deliver solutions through our, through our political systems, our social systems, our research institutions, et cetera. And uh, it's, it's uh, not entirely a bleak story, but I, I, I do suggest that our problems are becoming harder, faster than we can solve them. And exhibit A would be climate change. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem that for some reason we just can't, we can't really address effectively. And it's the reason, reasons why are not obvious, not, not straightforward. And so I spend a fair amount of time in the book unpacking those reasons. Uh, so basically two parts to the problem. One is the, what are the factors making our problems more difficult, whether it's climate change or widening economic and social inequalities, deepening political polarization in our societies. And then on the other hand, what are the factors that are keeping us from responding effectively? Most, most analysts don't separate those two questions very clearly. So that was the first book, The Ingenuity Gap, which came out in 2000. And uh, in, in the second book, The Upside of Down, took the analysis of the humankind's crisis uh, a number of steps further and looked at basically the question, if we have a chronic ingenuity gap, if we can't solve our problems, what are the ultimate consequences? And I talked about the possibilities of major social ruptures and societal collapses as a result of uh, in an inability to address these huge challenges that we face. And, uh, and I used the example of Rome, the Roman Empire, and why it collapsed. And, I, and I, I, I examined ways in which our current situation is similar, but also different from the Roman crisis. Uh, the, the, the title, The Upside of Down, though, was supposed to suggest that these crises that are emerging in the future could provide opportunities for, for creative renewal of our societies and institutions, the upside of the, of the of, uh, crisis, the upside of down. So that was the second book, and it came out in 2006. And a lot of critics uh, said at the point, and they were quite right, that there was a lot of down in that book and not a lot of upside. <laughs> and, and, and it's partly because I, I kind of ran out of space. I'd written uh, about 130,000 words, and I, I more or less finished my analysis of why we're facing major social ruptures and perhaps even societal collapse. And I hadn't gotten to the upside. But the other part of it was that I actually wasn't ready to run that upside. It, it, it took me another, well, ultimately another 14 years to publish the third book, which I worked on for a total of eight years. It was by far the hardest of all the books I've ever written to write. I started it three times. Twice I threw out enormous amounts of material because it wasn't working. It was only in 2016 that I realized really had to be about hope that the core of my prescription, the two first books, The Ingenuity Gap and The Upside of Down were both highly diagnostic. But the core of my prescription in this third book had to be, had, had to be a focus of hope, on hope, on the concept of hope and, and why it's so important and how we can sustain it. 
And and I, I realized that had to be the case again through my children because I realized that that the 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 thing that giving me the most anguish in the world, most uh, sense of crisis, was the possibility that my children would grow up, merge into the world as adults, and lose their sense of hope into a world of turbulent violence, and would lose sense of hope. So that that's when things really started to crystallize at that point. And it really is the third book in a trilogy. I don't know if I have any more books to write at this point. I think I kind of said what I wanted to say, but it took a, it took longer than I expected. Wow. So, okay. So I remember even, you know, th that surprised me in a number, like seeing your next book, book's title containing the word hope really surprised me in so many different ways. So first of all, I remember from undergrad, you had a, a bit of a reputation as Dr. Doom, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, secondly, uh, I remember a conversation I had with you once when I came to visit you in your office hours and how we were talking about our shared interest in philosophy and how you're sharing with me that you felt like you didn't make much more much progress there and how you, you went into a lot more rigorous scientific approach where you can actually measure things and, and where you can actually see that you've made the difference and you've made some progress. Uh, and now you're throwing in a concept, so I'm going to ask you to break down this concept for us. What is hope uh, and can we measure it? How do we define it even? Uh, because that's that's what really surprised me here. It's not really a, a scientific concept that many scientists would like uh, point or steer us, steer us towards. Yes. So, you know, you're quite right <clears throat> that um, just to go back, you know, first of all, I think that uh, the first two books I wrote laid out a diagnosis that was quite by many standards at the time. Uh, pessimistic. So I was labeled the Doommeister or Dr. Doom because I was saying that, you know, as we get into the 2020s, things are going to start to become very, very difficult. And we're going to see major social disruptions as a result of this panoply of challenges that humankind is facing. Yeah, I should uh, interrupt just for a second and say that saying that in one of your first books, you even predicted the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, in a way. Yes. So actually, the, the upside of down, it's not a long passage, but I actually pointed to the instabilities in the housing market in the United States. And I said that this could be could be the, a source of a global financial crisis. <clears throat> I mean, there were other people saying that kind of thing. But but I in, by the standards of the time, I was I was a a, a pessimist, even though I sort of characterized myself as a realist. I looked at, at the data and the science that I had and just said that we're in real trouble. So so I think nowadays that trouble is more broadly. So honestly, I get this thing about being Dr. Doom uh, and, and sort of dismissed as a pessimist. I get that much less. Now people are coming to me and saying, so what's going to happen next? And actually, compared to where I was in the early 2000s, I have a much less clear understanding of where we're going in the future. Because because what's happening now is the system is has is unstable. Global systems and social systems are unstable, and so they're they they become unlocked. And there's more possibility for variance in the future, uh, both positive and negative. Um, more and more so hinges that gets, in the pendulum. 
more hinges in the pendulum exactly and and uh, so that gets to the you know the second issue that you raised which is my somewhat complex relationship with philosophy I I, I I love philosophy and and it's informed me enormously all the way back to my graduate work analytical philosophy in particular philosophy of mind but ultimately one has to actually try to do things if I'm concerned about the future of my kids what what is it that we're going to do in the world we're not just going to think about it and try to parse it and break it apart into into pieces and understand what's going on we actually need to intervene and try to change things and so this third book is very much a book about activism it's about personal engagement it's about agency uh, how we can how we can make the world better as individuals and perhaps collectively as as societies and, uh, and and so so you know I decided as I said in 2016 or so that it really needed to be about hope because I was concerned about my kids losing hope. But then the philosophical the philosophical side of me emerged, and I said, okay, so let's what is this thing hope? Because a lot of people dismiss it and say that it's it's a kind of weak emotion, it's distracting, it leads us to wishful thinking. And so you know what can we? what is the thinking about hope? And if we apply our scientific lens to it, what can we do perhaps to make it a more powerful and, and significant and useful emotion in our, in our lives, which is why the, the title of the book is commanding hope. The, there's this idea that we can in a sense, make hope do our bidding. We can command it to be a useful power emotion for us. And then the version of hope that we come up with, which I articulate in the book, is itself, it commands our attention. It's powerful. It's a powerful notion of hope. It's a muscular notion of hope. So I build that out in three stages. I talk about honest hope, astute hope, and powerful hope. All three of those components, honest, astute, and powerful, are components of this larger notion of commanding hope. And honest hope is basically about making sure that our 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 hope is grounded in a in a realistic understanding as we face ourselves it's about how difficult say climate change is or or uh, the economic crises that some the world are facing that we actually acknowledge with the best scientific information we have how serious those are so that's in a sense honest hope is a relationship to truth it's a moral stance towards truth uh, a steep hope is about the kind of knowledge that we should have if we're going to hope well. And I put a lot of emphasis on a, a accurate knowledge, how we think about the world and how other people think about the world. So Thomas, we, we had a brief uh, technical interruption uh, or intermission, unfortunately, but we're back online. So perhaps you already shared with us about honest uh, hope. Perhaps you can walk us through the next two steps or two different types of hopes that you talk about in your book. Sure. Uh, thank you for everybody's patience on this. Uh, so the second of the uh, components of commanding hope is what I call astute hope. And this is really uh, more of an epistemological stance. If the first is a moral attitude or a moral stance towards truth, this is a, this is a, a, a kind of hope that reflects a particular form of knowledge. Uh, in this case, knowledge about how, uh, how we look at the world and what our perspectives are, especially our sort of ideological, social, and economic perspectives as well as uh, how other people look at the world, and especially try to unpack how our potential allies in 
political mobilization and potential opponents, if we're trying to achieve solutions to something like climate change, how those opponents look at the world uh, and understand better their perspectives. So that's what that's the grounding of astute hope. And I introduce in the book several uh, tools that allow people to unpack worldviews more effectively, ideological perspectives uh, on issues such as climate change or inequality and the way societies should operate and now and in the future. Uh, and then the third component is what I call powerful hope. And this is a hope that's focused on a very clear object or vision of the future. So some notions of hope uh, don't really aren't really oriented towards a view of the future. They are what psychologists would call objectless. Uh, but my notion of hope is one that articulates an idea of the future, a possible world that is very attractive and that can motivate us to push through the challenges that we face today and the challenges we'll face in the future. And that's more of a psychological stance. If the first is a moral stance towards truth, the second is an epistemological stance towards the kind of knowledge that we need to hope well. The third is as a, a psychological uh, a psychological perspective on, on what hope needs to be in order to give us a sense of agency and powerful motivation to persevere through difficult times. So those three components, I mean, frankly, they're a reflection of my own kind of hope. My hope is, is realistic, ruthlessly realistic about the nature of the challenges we face. I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how the people around me are looking at the world so that I can either ally with them more effectively, talk to them more effectively, bridge my differences with them, or strategically work around them in my political engagement to try to solve problems like climate change. And then thirdly, it all only matters if I have an idea of where I want to go. What is the world that I want to have in the future that is appealing and that a world in which I think my children will thrive? So in some sense, this notion of hope is very much a reflection of the way I unpack the concept. But in, in the book, I ground this in philosophy and psychology, positive psychology in particular, because there are a lot of people out there who've thought very clearly and well about hope. And so that's, those, those ideas are a starting point for the way I approach the topic. And you know, one key takeaway for me from the beginning of the book on hope from you that I'm, I think I'm going to take on from now on in my sort of everyday life, and it would make me self-conscious self-conscious about the way I speak about hope and the way I use hope even, is the, dis, the, the uh, distinction between hope that and hope to. Can you please yes. talk us through that, please? Yeah, so this is an important part of, uh, of what I guess I would call powerful hope. It's a, it, it, the distinction that allows us to have a sense of agency in our use of hope. So most people, when they're asked about hope, will use statements like, I hope that it's sunny tomorrow, or maybe, you know, more in, in a moment of humor, I hope that I win the lottery. Uh, or, or in very practical sense, I hope that my, my ill mother will get better if she's got cancer or something like that. So these are common hope statements, but each one is a is a hope that locution or a hope that expression. So I hope that something will come to pass. A possible world in the future that I desire will come to pass. It's very passive. 
it's it, it, there's uh, there's this sense that we have no control over any of those outcomes, and in many cases we may not. So, for instance, I, I don't have any control over the weather. It's sunny today, as you can see, but tomorrow it might not be. I can hope that it's going to be sunny, but I can't actually change it one way or the other. And that may be the tra true with, for instance, my mother's illness. Um, but I argue with commanding hope that at least with respect to the challenges that humankind faces, these terrible problems that we're facing, we need to adopt a different kind of locution, a hope to locution. Now, every time you say, I hope to something, uh, there's a verb. There's a verb that follows hope to. It's a verb that says we are going to be actively engaged. I hope to plant my garden tomorrow. I hope to convince my neighbors to uh, to uh, not play their music so loudly, <laughs> uh, I, I I hope to, you know, I hope to work with my community to try to limit carbon emissions. I hope I hope to help the world cap carbon, uh, cap global warming at one point five degrees. In each case, we're saying I'm going to be a part of that process. Uh, I I have agency. Uh, some small role to play in producing that desirable world that we're that we are hoping for, and so it's a very different approach to hope, and that's at the core of my notion of powerful hope because that's a notion of hope that really emphasizes agency, our capacity to actually make a difference in the world. And I think one of the reasons that hope is frequently criticized and regarded as a passive emotion is because people automatically think of it in terms of hope that, mm -hmm. but it's quite easy to make the flip to hope too and that's something i encourage in the book that's why i believe it as a as a as a matter of personal exercise and personal conduct i think it's a very healthy to switch myself from the sort of classic hope that to hope too which immediately puts the responsibility or the onus on me to realize or recognize and acknowledge the fact that I am to some degree or another participant in the action and therefore exactly. to some degree or another, I do have an imp import and impact on the whole system. Uh, and, and I'm responsible for recognizing at least that fact and I'm responsible for at least controlling my own maybe minuscule part of the system, but still I'm responsible for that. And I should be yes. proactive about it rather than Passive. So, so I, I thank you for that kind of insight. I think it's very there's, healthy. There's one other thing too, and this is uh, uh, this sort of reflects this idea that Reinhold Niebuhr suggested in the middle of the 20th century to have the wisdom to distinguish between those situations we can change and those situations we can't. So it is important to sometimes say the best I can do is to hope that in this situation. And part of what honest hope is about is teasing out the places where we can have agency and make a difference and the places where we can't. Um, although I argue that frequently we throw up our hands too soon and say, there's nothing we can do. Whereas in many cases, if we use our imaginations a bit, there's a lot we can do. So we have to be very careful about shifting back to hope that. Uh, we should start with hope too. What can I do? And then if, if in the end we decide there's not much we can do or nothing, then, then we move on to what we can do. But uh, that's, a, that's a very important process of using our imaginations to explore possibilities before we make that, that we, we decide that the situation is uh, more deterministic and there's not so much we can do. Let me just ask you to zoom back out a little bit with me and talk about the site subtitle, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. Now, we discussed sort of the power and our responsibility with that distinction about hope, but let's talk about 
a world in peril. Now, if I were to ask you to zoom out as far away as possible and think about what is the biggest per- the biggest top two or three perils that humanity as a civilization is facing today, how would you rank them? Well, um, right at the top of the list and not the top of most people's lists, but right at the top of my list is our absolutely disastrous relationship with our, the natural systems around us. And the fact that we are we are pushing those natural systems beyond the boundary of their capacity to repair themselves or to stabilize themselves. I mean, climate change is the most obvious obvious example i think now to people most people get that we've got a real problem with climate i don't think they realize how serious the problem is for the most part but uh but the our, our disastrous relationship with the natural world is manifesting itself in a lot of ways uh, you know collapsing pollinator systems uh and we need pollinators to produce a lot of our food uh uh disappearing fish stocks around the world, uh, coral reefs dying. You know, coral reefs supply are the principal, the fisheries that are supported by coral reefs are the principal source of protein for about a billion people on the planet. Uh, uh, Mammalian populations around the planet are collapsing. And uh, so we're starting to get a lot of signals that the the resource extraction and the pollution output into our natural resource extraction from and pollution output into our natural systems are starting to push these systems beyond the boundaries of their stabilizing mechanisms. And if they flip, you know, once you get, and I start the book with a story about this, once they flip into a different state, we're not going to be able to get them back into the productive stable states that have allowed human civilization to flourish. So for me, that envelope of natural systems around human civilization uh, is vitally important and gets nowhere near as much attention as it deserves. And to the extent that we're just damaging it or destroying it, uh, it's going to rebound on our, on our civilizations and undermine our, our economic well-being, uh, dramatically reduce ultimately our gross domestic product to the the, the amount of goods and services we can produce through our economies. And that will in turn affect social and political stability to the extent that our economies become weaker, or less productive. Uh, we're going to deepen divisions within our societies. Rich and powerful groups will do what they can to hold on to what they've got. And others will become increasingly vulnerable to uh, to stress and, uh, of course, to the environmental shocks that are at the same time increasing in in uh, in 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 uh, becoming increasingly extreme. So uh, so this is a this is a bad future. We wreck our natural environment. We end up wrecking our economies, and we wreck our political and social stability. So this goes back, you know, to the beginning of our interview, where I talked about my very early research, and it's it's ultimately why why I spend so much time in my books talking about issues such as climate change. Climate change is going to become this century the dominant threat to the human species. It, I have absolutely no doubt about that. If we go even to three degrees warming, and we're about 1.2 right at the moment above pre-industrial temperatures, but if we go to even three degrees warming, there isn't an ecosystem on the planet that will not be shredded by that. And there's no prospect for anything resembling liberal democracy to, to, sur- to survive in a world that's three degrees warmer than it was pre-industrial times. Uh, we won't be able to grow the food, among other things, that we need to support the 10 billion people who will be on the planet. So, so uh, 
so that's right at the top of my list. And then there, there are a series of, I guess you could say, sort of subordinate or derivative problems. I've sort of talked about them, uh, widening economic inequalities, rising political polarization, the rise of populist authoritarianism, um, uh, some of the technological stresses that our societies are facing, which are uh, uh, creating, I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, in particular of, re of recent developments in social media technologies that seem to be reinforcing divides between groups and deepening deepening we they divisions uh, between identity groups and he, and here's a big one and I think uh, and, and and this is sort of at the confluence point of a lot of this stuff is what I would call a kind of epistemic fragmentation where where we're losing the ability as societies to have agreement on very basic facts and to the extent that we don't agree on basic facts about the nature of the world and the nature of the challenges we face, it's very hard to, to solve those problems effectively. A democracy, for instance, can't effective, effectively function if, if the people who are talking to each other don't actually agree on what the problems are and don't have a, a basic agreement about the, the facts of the matter or the nature of reality around them. And that epistemic fragmentation is now rife especially within western democracies and we can see it of course in the united states so that's my i guess you could say my short list of challenges uh and and it's daunting because they're all happening simultaneously in a way people don't recognize they're all, all kind of integrated with each other and they and they're reinforcing each other it's people call this kind of perfect storm but they don't but the problem with the language the perfect storm terminology is it sort of implies that each one of these things, whether it's economic stress or climate change or political polarization, rising authoritarianism, you know, collapse of, of uh, mammalian populations, that they're all kind of separate, distinct problems. But actually, they're all they're all affecting each other at this point. And it's those synergies, those that kind of synchronization of these problems that's most dangerous for us uh, because it kind of it's 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 likely, and this is a point I make going all the way back to the ingenuity gap. It's likely to kind of overwhelm our coping mechanisms, our institutions, our capacity to solve problems. So this is a it's a thick stew of issues for us, and uh, and it and I can understand why. And this is where hope comes in. A lot of people look at it and say, and to the extent they understand what's going on, they say, oh wow, can't do deal with this. This is too big. This is too much. I'm just a little person. There's nothing I can do. And they either deny that it's happening or just end up in a in despair and walk away and throw up their hands mm -hmm. well we'll we'll get into that in a second but before that let me just uh push back a little bit not from my thoughts because i actually really like that epistemic fragmentation uh thesis i haven't heard it defined quite like that before and i absolutely love it i think it's it perfectly capturing sort of the foundation of the problem because we're kind of like playing a game but if we are playing under the same rules then we're playing the same game then we can get somewhere but if we're not playing under the same rules or we're refusing to even recognize that even we're playing with each other or something then it becomes really dangerous because exactly. it's completely out of control and then it becomes really unpredictable right and and i think uh, yeah. that concept of yeah. epistemic fragmentation really captures it well the problem is can i yeah go can ahead. i just jump yeah, in very yeah. quickly so so the the idea of a game is really important and the rules of the game so what's happened is that to the extent that that we've we have lost the common understanding of our reality then people start attacking the rules of the game 
and and that's you know going back to my work on conflict that's a that you're only a few steps away from mass violence at that point because as soon as you start to attack the rules of the game you you you're starting to say that some people are not playing by rules anymore that we agree with and they are essentially outside the the moral ambit of our community in other words we don't we we have we don't think anything they think is legitimate anymore. Even their status as human beings is not legitimate anymore. And that's that's just a short step away from the kind of massive, uh, inhumane violence, mass violence that we've seen, uh, for instance, in the 20th century, where, where you have genocides, uh, carpet bombing, uh, grotesque acts of terrorism, et cetera. It's, it's, that, it's that move towards believing that other people are not playing by the rules of the game that is so dangerous so do you think then that we are not far away from that kind of a moment right now you know it's very interesting i i think that it's kind of up in the air i said at the beginning it's like all the pieces are unlocked and everything is in motion and i think the pandemic has been a a moment that has both accentuated these tendencies but also reminded us in some ways of something that's very important and that we should remember with respect to a problem like climate change, that we ha are in a situation of shared fate on this planet. This is a very small place and there are a lot of us here and we've got to do things now pretty carefully or we're all going to, we're all going to, to end up in a, all of us in a very bad place. We can't, it's not the case that a few of us can go off and gate ourselves off and protect ourselves. I, you know, I get asked uh, quite frequently by people, so where can I go? Where can I go when climate change gets bad? Where can I go when things start to fall apart? And my answer is, well, nowhere, because it's going to affect us all. Climate change is affecting the entire atmospheric ocean, oceanic system of the planet. You could go, you can try to go to Tasmania or New Zealand or Iceland, but the, but the energy imbalances and the extremes of climate are going to get you there just as much as anywhere else. Well, Peter so Thiel is going to New Zealand, definitely, and then uh, his buddy Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Yes, well, very few of us are going to get to Mars. And, uh, you know, for the folks who want to fly to New Zealand when things start to fall apart, you know, my first question is, well, I, you know, are you going to take your pilot's family? Are you going to take your mechanic's family? Are you going to take an entire warehouse of all of the bits of technology from the bearings in your in your jet engines to extra chips for your computers uh, down there so that you can sustain the complex system of services and technologies that you rely upon? And what happens, by the way, when uh, some kind of new virus or antibiotic-resistant bacteria infiltrate their way into New Zealand, which they will, and the medical system of the world has fallen apart and you're there by yourself watching this come? I mean, you know, you can, you can try to shut yourself off from these changes, but all that's really going to happen for these extraordinarily wealthy folks with their in their in their estates in New Zealand with their landing strips and, and stuff is that they're just going to have an extra couple of decades to watch things fall apart around them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sound very appealing to me. So so you know to get back to my point, we're in a situation of shared fate. And I think that that the pandemic has help remind many people around the world of this reality. So whether we're going to go to the what I would call the Mad Max world where everybody 
thinks no, but other folks aren't playing by the rules and we need to fight and we need to, we need to prepare to kill them or whether we're going to go to a pathway where we, we see that we actually have to pull together to solve these problems together. I think that's very much up in the air. I think it's an open question at the moment. Well, how do you feel from sort of, I don't want to call it criticism, but it's kind of like they're they're kind of stealing the 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 light from this issue in a way by uh, i mean take elon musk he says that the biggest threat humanity has ever faced is artificial intelligence and then you have bill gates steve wozniak uh even dr stephen hawking said that the the beginning of ai may be the end of humanity uh elon musk even said that that uh AI is more dangerous than nukes, which I totally disagree with him. And actually, when I go and do my keynotes, I often say that in my view, the biggest, the most dangerous phenomenon on the human uh, on our planet is uh, uh, human stupidity. It's not yes. artificial intelligence because we're not anywhere close to artificial general intelligence, but yet human stupidity is prevalent all over the yes. place. And right. it, and as you said in the beginning, the enemy is us. Right. And and yeah. that's 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 also the point that I'm trying to get across when I go out and speak there. But yet people with who are kind of getting disproportionate amount of mass media coverage like Elon and others are pushing the line that AI is the most dangerous thing on our planet. Well, so that you raise a bunch of really interesting points. And by the way, to my previous list, I would need need to add nuclear weapons and their possible use. Uh, that's an issue that I started working on when I was a graduate student at MIT. That was one of the principal reasons I went there. I was part of a group of researchers focusing on the US-Soviet arms race in those days in the 1980s. It's still an enormous challenge. I actually talk in the book about a woman back in the 1950s, Stephanie May, who mobilized mothers around the world to- She's my to... next question. So keep that story because okay. I'm okay, going I'll, to I'll ask you because it's, it's, it's the best story for hope. So keep it to the yeah, side. Yeah, We're so going we'll to come keep back, back but, to I, but But the, the nuclear weapons issue figures quite prominently in the book. And I'd also agree that in some broader sense, and this is why I spend so much time inside people's minds and talking about psychology and social psychology, that that it's a kind of human stupidity or, or hubris, uh, lack of moral compass, incapacity to see the world as other people see it, that, that we need to address. And so in the book, that's why I spend a lot of time providing people with some basic tools so they can, for instance, understand other people's worldviews better. Uh, so artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> when I was at MIT, I spent a fair amount of time working uh, in, with artificial intelligence researchers in the 1980s. Now, of course, it was very different in those days. That was just the beginning of neural net re research, thinking machines and the like. Um, and uh, uh, But I did get a pretty good understanding of the basic premises of, of uh, artificial intelligence and ap potential applications, for instance, in natural language understanding, uh, understanding everyday speech. And... Uh, and I've watched the evolution and the, the hype around artificial intelligence over the last few years with a bit of skepticism. It sounds like we probably shared that skepticism. Um, I think the most dangerous thing about AI is not super smart AI, it's uh, stupid AI. It's artificial intelligence that is good enough to be put in charge of certain processes in our societies, but not good enough to not make really bad mistakes. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting that people have backed off a little bit with uh, autonomous vehicles. You know, everybody was super excited about autonomous vehicles. And, and, and then they started telling us we'd be driving them everywhere by 2020. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, it turns out that it's actually fairly easy to spoof uh, uh, an autonomous vehicle system and its recognition of a stop sign by putting some kind of, you know, little distracting symbol on the stop sign and then it no longer recognizes it, you know. And then there's this broader issue of of um, being able to get inside other people's heads as we're driving down the road all the time. We're looking at other people and because we have very advanced theories of mind, we are coming to very quick decisions about what they are doing in their driving behavior or whether they're pedestrians on the side of the street about to cross in a crosswalk or something. And we do things like we look, we look at the direction of their eyes, we look at the expression on their face if we're talking about somebody that might be just about to step into a crosswalk. We look we look at uh, whether they're having a conversation with somebody. We look at whether they we think they're distracted or paying attention. And we do all that processing incredibly fast. It's something that we've learned to do ever since we were, you know, we were toddlers, basically, interpreting social arrangements and social behavior around us. And it's it's uh, and and it, it requires a very sophisticated understanding of, of human intentionality and human agency. And uh, and and uh, it's you can try to program that into an AI system using a series of decision rules, and you will get it right most of the time, maybe even 99.9% .9 of the time. But that 0.01% of the time can kill people. And, and uh, I, I think what we're going to find with a lot of these technologies is that is that human beings actually do this stuff better and will continue to do it better for a long period of time. So I don't, I don't see... I don't see the Terminator future coming to pass. I see uh, something more like, um, I think it would be a good, a good example of stupid AI in, in pop culture. I was thinking of Colossus, the Forbin Project, which was a movie from the 1970s that was sort of a precursor to the Terminator series. But even there, the computer is, is obviously incredibly smart, smart sort of outstrips yeah. outstrips human intelligence in this case i think it's more likely that that we will think we will think that we this particular set of procedures ai procedures that we linked into our strategic nuclear weapon system uh, will keep us safer but we haven't recognized that there are that there are consequences glitches in it that make it actually stupid and it mistakes the flock of geese for an incoming barrage of russian missiles and and you know unleashes everything in response before we can intervene you know so that's stupid ai and and uh i, th I find that actually very dangerous I don't, I don't think that it's going to supersede human intelligence anytime soon, but we could end up relying on it too much that it causes us catastrophic problems. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But so before I ask you about Stephanie's May story, let me just ask you one last thing here on this, because, uh, you know, th there's people like Steven Pinker who would tell us about the better uh, angels of our nature. You know, I've had here Ray Kurzweil, who was telling us that the singularity is near. I've had Peter Diamandis who told us that, you know, we are going to live and we already live in a world of abundance. And not only that, but the future is better than we think. Yes. Uh, so you have these people who, you know, I call just like you, the techno solutionists. Um, 
And yet they are again taking a big uh, chunk of the media coverage and they're very capable of sending their message out there. Uh, people want to hear their message. People want to pay for their message. Then the doomsayers like you or the skeptics uh, and, and the sort of poor philosophers like me, they're not so popular. So yes. how do you feel about that? Uh, what's the best attitude and behavior towards it? And how do we resolve that problem or if it's a problem at all? Well, maybe it's self-serving, but I would say it's one of the burdens that realists have to have to bear, right? So, I'm not inclined, and this may, you know, this is self-serving and maybe enormously unfair, but I'm not inclined simply to tell people stories they want to hear. Of course, people want to hear that the future is going to be good. Of course, of course people want to hear that there's this trajectory of increasing abundance, that we can use our 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 minds to solve all the problems we have and, and that we'll all we live need to, to do. get uh, forever on top of it right exactly and and uh you know as as you know i think it's in chapter nine of the book i actually or chapter eight i i i mentioned these folks all of the ones you just talked about kurtzvail pinker diamandis all of them are all mentioned and i refer to them as techno optimists and pinker is a little bit distinct because for him, it's not just about improving technology and technological possibility in the future. It's about it's about the capacity of human reason to expand its ambit, its scope, and and how that over time it drives an expanding expanding um, uh, radius of empathy and and uh, what you might call more tolerant values within our societies, producing more peace, more cooperation. There's there's much especially when it comes to Pinker, there's much I'm sympathetic with and that I, I think we could have a very constructive conversation. But I think one of the mistakes that all of these folks make is they, they have a, a, a fairly selective interpretation of the past where they identify a series of data points that suggest that things have, have improved a lot and they have improved a lot. When you look at mortality, sickness around the world, when you look at general quality of life, we've seen extraordinary improvements in, in the spread of basic freedoms, although some of that's been ratcheted back over the last little while, last few years. But if you look back over the course of the last century, uh, the quality of human life in general has improved enormously. But the mistake is to assume that that it's it's to extract extrapolate those trends into the future and assume that the future is going to be simply a a, a linear extrapolation or a more or less straight line extrapolation of the past. And instead, I think what we're looking at is the emergence of potential tipping points and ma massive negative nonlinearities in the system. And we can say that because we've seen these kinds of things happen in civilizations before where people have said, oh, it's all good and we're all okay and we just have to keep doing more of what we're doing and we're on a great trajectory here and then and then things go off a cliff. And the evidence is suggesting that there are cliffs coming. We don't know how close they are, but they could be, it could be coming soon and they could be a disastrous consequence for us. So there's this tendency to look to the past and assume the past is going to be a, uh, a, a, it is a, the future a is a better version of, what, of the past. Right. The future is going to be a, basically a, a, a version of the past. And, and, uh, and then the other part of it is that they, they frequently, they're quite selective in their use of data. And, uh, 
they highlight successes mm -hmm. and they aren't paying attention to sort of the structural inequalities in the global system and the enormous numbers of people who haven't actually seen a huge amount of improvement at all. Or the cost, the cost to other costs. species and the plant, the right. biosphere. Right. And these external costs, which are building up kind of what I say beyond the horizon of our visibility. We dump a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We don't see the consequences for a long time. And that's allowed us to transfer wealth essentially from the future and from our natural environment into our present consumption. But those costs are now starting to impinge upon us in major ways. So, you know, I look at Pinker's books, his latest one, Enlightenment Now. And I read very carefully his section on climate change. He takes climate change seriously. But for me, this is a litmus test, right? He takes climate change seriously. He recognizes the gravity of the problem. But he still thinks that ultimately we, you know, we can solve this fairly easily if we just apply our brains to it. Well, we've been trying to apply our brains to it in some ways for almost 30 or 40 years now, and we aren't making any progress, virtually no progress, when you look at carbon dioxide increase in the atmosphere. Uh, and and uh, so it suggests that maybe that kind of optimism about human reasoning and rationality is misplaced. Yeah, and, and even the whole idea of, of what the Enlightenment was. I interviewed Ada Palmer, who is uh, one of my favorite historians from the University of Chicago, and she was talking about how people have this kind of romantic view of the Enlightenment, but how most people uh, don't know the fact that life expectancy dropped from 35 to 18 during the beginning and middle stages of the Enlightenment, and how there were many communities where men of fighting age were completely uh, disappeared, were an extinct species, simply because of, of the violence that was ever present in those societies. Uh, especially at the heart of the Enlightenment, you know, the Italian city-states uh, and, and all the neighboring countries. Like, it was right. literally the Hobbesian state of war of, uh, of one against all at all times, basically. Uh, and even when it's historically a peace period, there is still ever-present violence at so many levels, right? Yes, uh, yes. So and even during the Industrial Revolution, which laid the foundation for this explosion of wealth, around the planet in the 20th century, but in the early parts of the Industrial Revolution, you know, the Dickensian period in the 19th century, there was a sharp decline in the well-being of large numbers of people as they were moved into essentially these labor pools to drive to power factories and, and the like. So there are huge costs. These transitions involve huge costs, and it's it's easy to be Pollyanna-ish about it to sort of look at only the, the 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 bright possibilities and the bright sides and select the data and I think there's a lot of data selection going on with these folks. Yeah, especially if you're on the beneficiary end of things, if you end up being on the upside rather than yes. the downside. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Tad, time is really advancing, so I'm starting to get concerned here. We only have 20 minutes left, so let's quickly touch on the heart, the, the best story about hope that I've heard in a very long time, which is the story of Stephanie May. And then we can hopefully jump towards what we can do about all of this. So now we've laid the groundwork and we spent most of the time laying the groundwork of the, how profound of a problem we're facing today. And we touched on many of its facets. Now let's talk about the most hopeful story I've ever heard. One I've never heard before I actually read your book, which is the story of Stephanie May. 
Okay, so Stephanie May, it's, it's very serendipitous that I, I stumbled upon the story. Um, so I'll tell I'll tell a story about the story, and then I'll tell the story itself. So the story about the story is that back when I started my university education here on Vancouver Island at the University of Victoria in 1976, I guess, 75, 76, long time ago, there was a Canadian uh, uh, scholar and uh, international public official by the name of Bill Epstein at the University of Victoria. He was taking leave from the United Nations to write a book uh, on nuclear proliferation. He was one of the world's leading authorities on the spread of nuclear weapons around the world. And uh, he was also the most senior Canadian in the, in the United Nations Secretariat. But he was visiting for a year to write his book. And we got to know each other. He became a, my mentor for a number of years. And somewhere around that time, it might have been a couple of years later, he said to me, he said to me, you know, it was the mothers that made all the difference. He said, it was mothers mobilizing around the world that stopped the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. And uh, if you're helps. unfamiliar with that history that you're about to share with us, that sounds like the most ridiculous statement. Yes, it does. And, and, and actually, you know, their mobilization around the world was the impetus for the partial test ban treaty, which was the first major arms control agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union that put testing of nuclear weapons underground instead of testing in the atmosphere. So, you know, it, I filed that in the way in the back of my mind and think about it. But 40 years later, when I'm working on this book, um, I realized I needed a story that would really capture this notion of hope that I was developing. And I, 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 I remembered what Bill had told me. So I went to the web, as we do nowadays, and I entered a few search terms. And before long, I came up with a, a chapter in a book, and it had no name on it, but just said the title of the chapter was My Mother Helped Save the World. And, uh, uh, and, and so I started investigating. And I, after a while, I discovered that the chapter was about this woman, Stephanie May, and I'll tell the story in a second, that the chapter had been written by Elizabeth May, who's the leader of the Green Party in Canada at the time, and somebody I happened to know. So I wrote to Elizabeth right away, and I said, gee, I'd like to know more about your mother and, and her, her work to stop the testing of nuclear weapons in the 1950s. And, uh, and so, so Elizabeth said, well, you know, I think my brother still has her memoirs at our old house in Cape Breton, because the May family had moved from the United States to Canada in, in the 19, early 1970s. So I went out to Cape Breton a couple of months later, and I met Jeff, Jeff May, Jeffrey May, and he brought over his mom's memoirs. It was a 400-pages type manuscript of which no, no other copy existed. And he said at the same time, he said, I think you'll be interested in these scrapbooks. So he tossed a couple of scrapbooks on the table. And the scrapbooks were full of Stephanie May's correspondence with some of the most remarkable people in the Pure 1950s gold. and 60s. Pure gold. I just couldn't believe it. I was absolutely stunned by this. So that became the material for, for telling the story about Stephanie May. And the story is basically this. Stephanie May was a housewife in Bridgeport, Connecticut in the 1950s. And she was reading the newspaper and she learned that these an enormous number of tests that the Soviet Union and United States were conducting in the atmosphere of atomic bombs and, and then hydrogen bombs were basically shrouding the entire planet in, in radioactive material, which was bioaccumulating uh, into uh, ultimately uh, uh, fodder and the, and the milk from cows that her children were drinking and was substantially increasing the risk of leukemia for children around the world. And Stephanie just thought this was 
outrageous. So she started what she could do at a local level. She started a petition and she phoned local clergymen and parish and and uh, priests and others in her community and asked them to distribute her petition in their to their parishes. And working with another housewife uh, over a period of time, she got a couple of thousand signatures on a petition, which was a lot in those days. You know, this is hard. You you actually had to. You had to do the legwork, no email. You had to do the legwork. It wasn't all web-based in those days. She was working with carbon copies and Gestetners and things like that. So to cut a long story short, within within two or three years, she had connected with and mobilized mothers all over the United States. And, and, you know, I I talk about by 1961, she uh, went to England where she met Bertrand Russell. She became very close friends with the philosopher Bertrand Russell. She went to England and was at the head of the Aldermaston March, which was a march from a nuclear research facility called Aldermaston to London. And then in front of 100,000 people in Trafalgar Square in London, she brought greetings from all the mothers in the United States who were working on on the, this challenge of stopping testing. So I follow that story through the whole book. Uh, and the last, there, there are a number of episodes because it was hard for her. There were many times when she wanted to give up when it seemed like it was impossible. Um, but the final episode, she's, she's uh, engaged in a hunger strike outside the Soviet mission. Uh, and this is, I think about 1960, 61, late 61, if I recall. And uh, uh, the, the Soviets, there had been a, a moratorium agreed to testing between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the Soviets had just declared they were breaking the moratorium and they were going to explode the biggest bombs in history, Entire a whole bomb series bomb. of them. Yeah. So, so Stephanie said, this is crazy. You know, this is not just about opposing the United States. It's about opposing the Soviet Union too. And, and her community of activists was not, was not inclined to go as far as she was. And Stephanie said, well, I just have to do something. So she, she went on hunger strike outside the Soviet mission in, uh, to the United Nations in New York. And, uh, and, and she was just there by herself for days. And then all of a sudden the media started to pay attention. And she got national attention across all the major media in the last days of her hunger strike. And at that point, hunger strikes started all the way across the country, other mothers deciding that something had to be done. So, so I, use, I use Stephanie's story as a way of talking in a very personal way about this notion of hope, because her hope had those characteristics of honesty, astuteness, and it was psychologically powerful in just the way I try to articulate in the book. She's a living, um, she's a living and breathing example of commanding hope. I think an example today of somebody who is who is exhibited the same kind of hope is Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish climate activist, who who uh, is extraordinarily astute about how to operate strategically in her in her political and social environment. She's deeply honest about and realistic about the nature of the climate crisis and the science. And she has a very clear moral vision of where she wants to go, just the way Stephanie did. So that's the powerful hope component. That's the object of her hope is very clear in her mind. And I think these things, these stories tell me that this is a capacity that we all have inside ourselves to make a difference. Stephanie didn't start out to change the world. She just started out to do something and she ended up changing the world. But in the end, she actually led to to the treaty. Her actions led us to the treaty banning atmospheric nuclear weapons testing. 
Right. So there, there, you know, the interesting thing is there are a lot of different people involved. I mean, there were scientists and sure. politicians and journalists, and and there were all kinds of people who said this is nuts. But what Stephanie did, and I, I do a systems analysis using some work of the famous systems theorist Donella Meadows. She actually, it, it very deliberately, she wasn't a systems theorist, of course, but she knew what she was doing strategically. She created channels of communication between mothers who would otherwise have been this kind of diffuse, amorphous group, disconnected group of people. She created a community identity of, of, of concerned mothers across the United States. And then she created a channel of communication between those mothers and very powerful politicians in, in Washington. And those politicians, she didn't let those politicians forget about the mothers. She just kept hammering away. And she was very good at making her point about the importance of the mothers and the children in, 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 in sort of crystal clear, aphoristic ways, like single sentences and single arguments that just, you know, sometimes just left, left her opponents kind of speechless. They didn't know what to say because she was very smart and she knew how to operate within the system because she knew she had this kind of very astute understanding of how the other people she was working with saw the world whether they were opponents or allies and she could work strategically with those with those folks and around those folks as necessary so that's she um she was kind of a prototype of the of, of what all of us can do today i think of the kind of of the kind of astute systems operator that you need today so that we have about 10 minutes left so we managed to sort of lay out the story of the honest situation or or challenge that we find ourselves in we've gone through the story of stephanie may which is one of the most hopeful story about how a housewife a simple housewife from connecticut can start the butterfly effect which leads to the uh the treaty banning atmospheric nuclear weapons testing which by the way goes back to the pendulum right because these small things can make a very big difference right absolutely absolutely dead on and and so yeah. but but now i want to bring in another element which where the pendulum metaphor is is probably uh imperfect because i want to bring in the importance of a story and and you here in one place of your book and you're quoting somebody else uh when you say when we get our story wrong we get our future wrong so we mm -hmm. have about eight minutes dad what is the story that you want to tell us about how we should go about solving these problems and the story of the future that would kind of inspire us and give us hope to actually start taking those actions? What's that story? Right. So that's a wonderful quotation from David Corton, who, uh, uh, who talks about the importance of stories. And this is something I begin a book with my daughter, Kate finding a, a, an academic article, a scientific article on on uh, my wife Sarah's desk. And it's it it's a it's a grim scientific article that basically talks about potential tipping points in the global ecosystems in the future if we continue to damage uh, global ecosystems as we are right now. And it it comes up with a specific prediction for uh, when those nonlinearities might occur, when we might start to see the global collapse of ecosystems around 2045. And Kate is four and she can't read the article and she asks her mother, so what's the story about mommy? What's Sarah going to say, All right? So she says, she says uh, it's about how the world might change when you're a little bigger, darling. And it goes back to her 
marking at the time, but it's Kate flips flips the article over and takes out takes some of Mummy's colored pens and does a picture, which is reproduced in the book of her own story of the future, which is a, a flower growing out of the landscape and a big happy face on the flower, and little Kate's a stick figure at the bottom waving at the at the viewer. So she's created her own story about the future. And so I come back to this issue of stories and how we organize our thinking and worlds around stories, and especially it's stories of ours, of what our own purpose in life is, uh, how we respond to our desperate fear of mortality and death. I draw on the work of the, the anthropologist and social psychologist Ernest Becker, uh, which has been elaborated by social psychologists in something called terror management theory. We to create these hero stories, these sense of immortality projects. We're going to be good parents. We're going to be going to write a book. We're going to have a wonderful podcast. We're going to be a good community member. We're going to be a, uh, we're going to help build our local faith community. All of these things give us a sense of endurance and possibility beyond our mortal existence, right? They, they are symbolic hero stories or immortality projects. So we need, to, we need to create these possibilities so people can see themselves in the future in such a positive way. At the end of the book, I say, uh, I mean, I, uh, there's another episode with Kate where she's very scared because she thinks something bad's happening and she turns to me with tears in her eyes and she, she asks, will this story have a happy ending? And it's funny, you know, we never ask that as adults because we know that most stories don't have a happy ending. And in fact, there's no ending to most stories. The world just keeps unfolding. But I, this book is really my, my, in a sense, attempt to articulate a story for my children. Um, I start at the beginning of the book by talking about how kids build their imaginary realities. And Ben and Kate, when they were playing together when they were young, used the phrase, how about? all the time. How about, you know, we create this with Lego blocks? How about we imagine this world and then live in it for a while? And we forget to do those how abouts. And in some sense, this book, Commanding Hope, is my how about for the children. And I think, I think they can have a life full of purpose and meaning in the future. This is going to be, to you know, get directly to your question, this is going to be a, a period of time of enormous import for the for the human species it really is all on the line this century we're either going to live we're going to grow up and learn to live as as a, a mature species a morally mature species a not stupid species in this small ecosystem and flourish together along with nature or we're going to probably wipe ourselves out it won't happen in one big bang. It'll be a it'll be a long, extended process of disintegration of social order and and decline and well being. But over the long run, that's a that's a species dead end. It might take centuries. It might take millennia. But it's a species dead end. So everything's on the line, and this is a moment where everybody can play a role. It's an extraordinary, exciting time. In, in the evolution of our species. And it's a time when we can start to articulate new possibilities for the future, moral possibilities about how we see each other uh, so that we, we, we don't end up fighting each other. So I don't know, and, and the, other part of this, the other part of this thinking about stories is to recognize that we don't know the worlds around us, the systems around us well enough to know that good things are impossible. So if somebody had said, and to come to the Greta Thunberg example, if somebody had said in 2017 that a, a little girl 
14 or 15 years old is going to sit on the steps of the Swedish parliament building with a sign saying in Swedish school strike and her little backpack beside her. And she was going to galvanize a global movement of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people to demand climate action. We would have said, oh, that's a ridiculous idea. It's never going to happen. And yet it was right there across the boundary of what complexity scientists call the adjacent possible. It was just invisible to us. And Greta Thunberg single-handedly pulled it into the present and made it possible, pulled it into reality. There are many, many other possibilities out there, positive possibilities, I'm sure. Just because we don't see them doesn't mean they aren't there. And that gives me an enormous sense of hope. You do the Stephanie May thing, you do the great Thunberg thing, you do what you can in your own lives, you think big and you use your imaginations. We don't know what the possibilities are here for positive change. We may be on the cusp, this is the core of my positive story, we may be on the cusp as a species of a transformative revolution in human perspectives and living on this planet. It has happened before in the past, the great German existential philosopher Karl Jaspers has spoke of the axial age between 600 BC, BCE and 200 BCE, during which five human civilizations all shifted their cosmologies simultaneously. They weren't communicating much with each other, but that shift in cosmology laid the groundwork for modernity. We may be on the cusp of a second axial age in the 21st century. And, and because the moment that we face as a species is completely unprecedented. We've never been in a situation like this before. So it's, it's quite conceivable that unprecedented positive changes are possible for us. That's the story I tell about, to my children uh, that, that they can be part of. Uh, it's scary, exciting, but it's also meaningful. And meaning is the most important thing of all if you're going to push through scary times. Tad, for those of our viewers and listeners who may be interested in, in hearing more about your story and going, following you further along on your journey and per perhaps even doing what we all hope they would do, which is to become active participant in that story, what's the best place for them to follow you and your work? Well, they can go to my website, which is uh, homerdixon.com, uh, without a hyphen, H-O-M-E-R-D-I-X-O-N.com. They can go to the book website, Commanding Hope. There's a lot of stuff there, including direct links to uh, some of these tools for modeling people's belief systems. Uh, one that I talk about in the book called Cognitive Effective Mapping. We have software that allows anybody to do that, basically to represent other people's points of view, their emotional responses to to the world to a problem like climate change or to Black Lives Matter or anything. You can do, use these maps for all kinds of useful purposes. Uh, but the other thing I think it might be worth keeping an eye on is this new institute that, that I've worked to found uh, here on Vancouver Island. It's called the Cascade. And in some ways, Commanding Hope is a 100,000 word pitch for what we're trying to do in the Cascade Institute, which is identify these possibilities for producing really big changes with relatively small interventions. Again, going back to the pendulum, you know, if you just if you just start the pendulum in a slightly different way, it follows a very different pathway. And and uh, so the Cascade Institute is about finding what we call high leverage intervention points in people's belief systems, in our institutions, in our technologies that allow us to tip the world more quickly in a very positive direction. And there's lots of material there that anybody can read that uh, that can show show them how, what some of these possibilities might look like and how we can implement some of them in our in our personal lives. So that's in terms of the substance, 
I'd start with the Cascade Institute website. It's cascadeinstitute.org. And uh, the Institute's only been around now for 10 months, but there will be a lot more there. And that's probably where we're going to be putting all of the stuff that's relevant to this more hopeful story. And, you know, I remember when I was playing with the pendulum itself, you know, maybe I'm waving my own flag here, but my third attempt, I think, was pretty good and pretty impressive, relatively speaking. Uh, so I think hopefully what we could manage to do is kind of like, uh, you know, push it over 30, 40, 50, 60 years, which would give us more leeway, more exactly. more time to come up with better solution, better coordination, better story that would create that weeness that you're talking about, or the Dalai Lama calls about uh, talks about oneness, yes. uh, and and so that that we can we can we can do what's required of us to do. But you know, if we just like I took that pendulum example for the rest of my life. Uh, now, if people were to take a single lesson or the most important thing from our conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? Well, we come back to the Stephanie May story and the Greta Thunberg story. I mean, in some ways, Stephanie May, Greta Thunberg is an enormously unusual person for a whole bunch of reasons. But Stephanie May, you know, by all intents and purposes, she was a, a regular, what we would have called in those days, a regular housewife. I mean, she showed the capacity of an individual perhaps at the right time and place, but also an individual who, who, who's stubborn, smart, persistent, can produce extraordinary change. But, you know, you mentioned the issue of weeness. One doesn't ultimately do it by oneself. One has to build communities and a sense of common identity around these projects. And, uh, and so this starts, you know, on the, fundamentally with what one does in one's family and within this community, the conversations we have around the dinner table, how one how politically involved one is and and uh, and the kind of how much time one spends to actually learn about the issues so that one's smart about them these things are all all things that ultimately we can do as individuals it's going to, the changes will happen if positive changes will happen they will happen because because of the aggregate effect of the actions of all of enormous numbers of individuals if we don't act if we don't have hope necessary to mobilize ourselves as individuals to act as individuals then the worst outcomes will come to pass so in some sense it all starts ultimately in our own in our own hearts and in our own emotions and it starts it's a necessary condition i would say is this kind of hope it's not the it's not sufficient because then you actually have to do something but it starts with believing that we can do something and we can make a difference it's, it, 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 when we work together with each other well, you know what? That kind of brings me to, uh, and you talk about the book, the the Tolkien uh, uh, distinction between two types of hopes, Andir and Estel. So, so can you perhaps send us away? Because I think this goes to the core, to the heart of what you're talking here. If I get this right. Yes. So Tolkien, very interesting. I have a section in the book where I talk about the Lord of the Rings and I, and because I was reading it to Ben and I realized about halfway through the first book that what one reason this is such a riveting story for so many people is it's really a reflection. It's a meditation. Tolkien was meditating on what we should do when a situation looks completely hopeless because it looked hopeless for the Fellowship of the Ring. And yet it wasn't. And in many respects, what Tolkien is articulating in the book is very similar to what I call commanding hope. The, the, the fellowship was realistic, astute, and they had a powerful notion of the possibility of the future. So, so again, that's the same kind of hope. 
But Tolkien was a brilliant man, and as is clear, and deeply grounded in philosophy and human psychology. And it turns out that he reflected on the topic of hope. The, the concept of hope is mentioned about 300 times in, in The Lord of the Rings over the three volumes. But it isn't unpacked in detail. But in, his, in papers that were published posthumously by his son, uh, there is an exchange, a fictional exchange that Tolkien wrote between a, an elf, uh, elf king and or elf prince, I think, and an old woman about the nature of hope. And uh, they introduce in this conversation the difference between two kinds of hope, Amdir and Estel. Uh, and now these are these are concepts of hope that are fictional within Tolkien's cosmology, within within his Lord of the Rings cosmology, Middle Middle Earth cosmology. But still, he's clearly homing in on his own philosophy of hope. And Amder is a kind of hope very similar to what I would call commanding hope. It's it's uh, grounded in the best knowledge we have of the world. It it it's it it requires that you have some sense that good things are possible. The possibility may be very small, but they're still possible. We can have hope with very small possibilities, but those possibilities, he would argue, with this notion of Amder, have to be grounded grounded in. Uh, real empirical facts and understanding of the world. But then he had this other notion of, of hope called Estel, which is a hope that uh, is more objectless. It's more an attitude towards the future. It's the sense of that, that even if we can't see any clear positive possibility in the future that would ground Amdir, an Amdir kind of hope, we can still have this sense that, that there are things we don't know mean that things could turn out well for us. And and for me, what I think Tolkien is saying is that, just as I was saying before, our systems around us and our worlds are so complex that we actually will never know enough to be sure that there's no grounds for hope. We cannot we never know, know enough to be pessimist, basically. We cannot know enough to be pessimistic. And how does Gandalf put it at one point? He, he says, he, this is a remarkable statement. I must have reread this a thousand times. He said, despair is only for those who know the future without any doubt. We do not. Yeah. And, and that, for me, is, is it, uh, the uncertainty itself. Most people find uncertainty very scary. But for me, the uncertainty about the future is an enormous source of possibility. It's emancipatory. It means we can use our imaginations to explore alternatives all the time. Despair is only for those who know the future for sure, and we do not. Now and we do not. I love that. Thomas Omer Dixon, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. This has been fun. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 